Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The number of refugees resettled in the states has plummeted to its lowest levels in the past 40 years. In 2018, only 22,491 individuals were settled here. Compare that to 2016, when we admitted almost 85,000 refugees. Or 1980, when the number was 200,000. Why do we treat refugees differently today? Why do we even make the distinction between a refugee and an immigrant? These are some of the questions at the heart of Dina Nieri's new book, The Ungrateful Refugee. A novelist and refugee herself, Dina shares her own story and others to communicate, as the subtitle reads, what immigrants never tell you. Like that being a refugee is both excruciatingly painful and excruciatingly boring. That it's mostly limbo. That it's all about telling the right story in the right way. Dina and her family fled Iran as refugees in 1989, first landing in Italy, and then eventually landing in Oklahoma, and then continuing her nomad's journey across the world, and into a flourishing career as a novelist. Dina joins us from her home in London to talk about her first book of nonfiction. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So I want to start with the big question, which is why you're writing this book of nonfiction now about your experience as a refugee and other people's experiences as refugees today after years of writing fiction. Well, when I started to think about this book, you know, I had just had a baby girl, my first child in, in you know, late 2015. And then the very next year, Trump was elected and the Brexit vote happened. And so much just felt suddenly changed. And, you know, after three decades of getting more and more comfortable and feeling kind of okay with the world, suddenly you know, everything that I had been most afraid of as a newly arrived, you know, refugee kid just came rushing back. And then I felt all that fear for my daughter. So I thought, you know, there are things that I want to say. There are things that I want to say that, you know, I'm in a unique position of being able to say now. And I want to say it directly. I don't want to kind of 
do it, you know, with the subtlety and uh, of, of of fiction. And um, for this particular thing, I want to say exactly the kind of the life that I lived. I want to show other lives, and I want to say, you know, in kind of plain essayistic language, like these are the problems that I see in the world, and these are th- some of the things that people haven't told you. Um, and then on a personal level, I also had. I also had spent so many years writing fiction, kind of in a way hiding behind the veil of fiction. And also, in another way, kind of being a little narcissistic, you know, kind of thinking so much about my own journey and my own healing and my own, you know, emotional kind of place that I was. And I thought it's time to look outward. I'm a mother now, you know, and the world is changing. And I I just, I was ready to explore, kind of, I guess, something more urgent, more political, more you know, in touch with other people. I, I don't want to be someone who sits in a room and, you know, just chronicles their own experience or uses other people's for fiction, which is, I mean, I think it's, that's great. I love writing fiction, but I want to be also someone that's engaged in what's happening now. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like your experience as a writer and as a storyteller really does inform the book, and it is very direct. It seems like um, you didn't pull any punches, which I love. But before we get to that, I do want to, you know, talk about how you think the refugee experience has changed since you arrived mm-hmm. in the late 80s. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, this is one of the saddest things for me is how much we've regressed as a, as a society, our attitude toward our place in the world and how we got there and our sense of duty to other people has completely changed. When I was a refugee in 1989, um, it was very, very clear to me, even as a child, and it was definitely something that, you know, my my mother embraced, um, that, you know, the people around us felt a sense of duty. They felt the burden of the accident of their birth or the luck and the, 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 the kind of blessings that had come upon them by accident. And, and they thought, you know, living in a society that, I guess, more or less worked, they owed it to the outcasts of the world and the people who had suffered and the people who had been war-torn and displaced to offer them, you know, um, help and shelter. And that wasn't out of their good nature. It was a duty. It was a human obligation. That was very much understood. And then even even kind of misguided American exceptionalism uh, fed into this, that, you know what, if we do think of ourselves as such great people as Americans, well, then we have to do these things that good people do. You know, so there wasn't this public discourse about whether or not, you know, to open the door to refugees. Well, of course, like we like it just didn't feel okay to say some of the horrifying things that people say now. Um, And then also some of the kind of out and out hostility, like, for example, when you hear the chants, you know, against Ilan Amar, you know, send her back and all of that stuff. That's not the kind of thing you would say about refugees in a public place in the late 80s. Um, You know, and and now um, I feel like. So many people are coming from situations much worse than what I came from, you know, um, and they're coming into a, a more hostile West. You know, there's no certainty of being welcomed. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's this really telling section later in your book where you talk to one of the other Iranian refugees who came in this era in the present and you ask Kaveh to interview you as though you were a refugee arriving in 2017. Yeah. And it sounds a lot different from the questions that you relate from when you were a kid in the 80s. 
Yeah, I think it's it's because asylum officers have changed and asylum officers, the way they view their job has changed. What I remember, this is, of course, lens of, you know, a young kid, but, you know, this very professional woman who was asking us questions kind of kindly and it felt very much like she just wanted to know about us. But I think even my mother could sense it. She, she wanted to know why we needed to be helped. So the way that they looked at it was just it was just a subtle difference of, you know, asylum officer wanting to find out who needs their help as kind of the benevolent gatekeeper versus now when asylum officers are just looking for a reason to keep you out and in fact are incentivized by how many people they keep out and how effectively, um, you know, they root out inconsistencies. Now, that's shocking to me considering the fact that inconsistency is a part of natural human storytelling, even in extremely true stories. You know, we tell our stories with lots of inconsistency. And in fiction writing, we're actually taught to celebrate that. We're taught that those little orphan details and those little things that don't match up are what make it realistic. Not everything is tied neatly in a bow. But what they do is not only do they not listen like, you know, an honest listener, they also plant traps. So they ask the same question at 20 minute intervals again and again and again, hoping that you'll give a different answer. And, you know, a lot of people coming in are so innocent and naive to the process, and they don't realize that this is being done on purpose. They think, oh, I must have said something wrong. I'll give a slightly different answer. And by that right there, they are doomed. Um, so that's what's different is that now it's become this ugly game. And, um, you know, the person on the other side of the table isn't isn't the helper that we had. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where storytelling becomes really crucial, as you say, because it seems like as they go through the process, if refugees are lucky enough to make it past the first hurdle of getting into a country and being granted this waiting period, um, then you have to become really adept at telling a different kind of story almost, depending on your listener. Um, There's this one section Mm -hmm. where you talk about how, um, I'm going to quote here, you say, because to pass an asylum interview, you don't just need a true story. You need to tell that story the English way or the Dutch or the American way. Americans enjoy drama. They want to be moved. The Dutch want facts. The English have precedents, stories from each country deemed true that year, that month. The Dutch have something similar. Americans like the possibility of a grand success story. They adore exceptionalism and want to make all greatness American. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you're describing is a really very hard and slow lesson to learn. I mean, it's not as if someone can just tell you. I mean, one of the myths I think that I kind of started to realize is that, you know, cynical people from the West and asylum officers, etc. think, oh, well, this person has been coached. You can't be coached in how to, you know, truly, truly engage another person and move another person in, in, in the storytelling of their culture, because there is no essential storytelling. Like, um, I think that's the phrase that you use, you know, it's cultural, it's completely cultural, right? So, you know, you're an Iranian, you're moved by different things. And there's different things that you find, you know, kind of tired and cliche and dishonest than than as an American. You know, one example I use in the book is that a lot of the Iranians, uh, you know, the, the asylum lawyers kind of joke about how the Iranians have to be told not to start their story so far back. An Iranian comes in, and they don't 
don't start at the beginning of their troubles or at the beginning of their life. They start at the beginning of the universe, you know, mm. and you start a story there. And of course, the Western audience is going to think you're lying. It f- feels like an evasion. But we've all been taught from the very moment we heard our first story to begin at the beginning of the universe out of, you know, a sense of, I don't know, respect and awe and a place of your story within the larger story of humankind. I mean, it's just Iranian tradition. Um, so, you know, you have an older Iranian who's never heard any other kind of story, who's lived in a village all their life, who's run away out of necessity and doesn't wish to be away from home. And they'll start the story the way their grandmother told it and the way their mother would have told, you know, it's, they're not going to tell it just because they've been had a little bit of coaching the, the the moving American way. And I think that's one of the biggest troubles. People have a hard time showing their humanity to each other. And um, I met the refugee whisperer, this man in Holland, whose entire job is to teach people from the Middle East how to seem human to the Dutch. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that that job is necessary? No, it's it's maddening. You know, mm-hmm. the distinction seems so arbitrary between who is perceived as a refugee and who is perceived as some other kind of immigrant. Well, that's that's a tough one, too. Right. Because, you know, there there is this distinction made um, legally, I guess, between economic migrants and, and refugees. And I think, um, you know, people use that as a way to dismiss human beings and their troubles. And, and I think um, I think it's a vile distinction because you have, you know, people whose life lives are in immediate danger. And then you have people whose lives are in long term danger, you know, out of lack of, um, you know, food, money, opportunity. Um, and those people are dismissed as opportunists, even though actually, you know, they are also facing a kind of death, a wasted life. You know, I, many of the young men that I saw in the refugee camps have absolutely no future and so much potential visible, like just just trying to get out. I don't think that life is any any less in danger if you really think about it. And yet we people who are born lucky, I guess, people who are who have everything that we could hope for and constantly want more for ourselves, dare to try to judge who deserves to be here and who has a better story and who has suffered enough. I find that so very arrogant. Right. Well, I mean, and the deep irony, too, is that a lot of the countries they're appealing to for a better life were directly involved in making their life worse in their home country. Oh, yeah. Yep, exactly. I mean, they've they've created the refugees. I mean, it's interesting because in Europe, there is uh, a longer history of having refugee camps. And in the United States, I mean, we don't really have refugee camps. And it seems like we're collapsing uh, the immigrant mm-hmm. refugee category even further um, in the not good direction, I would contend. Um You know, we have governments keeping immigrants of all kinds in detention centers and private prisons and what increasingly look like concentration camps. I I guess my question is, having lived in both places now, having lived in the United States and in Europe, how do you think that the European conception and the American conception of refugees and immigrants have changed? Are they diverging, converging, going somewhere entirely unpleasant? Well, you know, um, one thing I should point out is that people are people and human beings tend to be very selfish and they don't like to look directly at, you know, um, 
at the troubles of others, especially if it means that they have to make sacrifices. I mean, this is one of our flaws as a species, and we need to face it. So yes, in, in, in America, there are you know some horrifying things going on. But in Europe, too, they are putting refugees in, um, you know, in, in old prisons and buildings that are not suitable and in parking garages and just cramped, you know, sporting spaces. And, and some countries do try to make the situation worse and worse so that people will go mm-hmm. away or so that they'll deter people from coming in. Um, so, um, you know, I think that's something that happens um, everywhere. People turn their backs. Um, but I think in the last few years, it's become alarming how, you know, just swaths of the population have forgotten, um, you know, their duty to humanity. They've forgotten that these are actually, you know, people exactly like them. And they actually believe that they have something to lose. So they've taken on this narrative that's been created by, you know, the far right, this kind of faceless, um, heartless cloud of potential danger. And it's very much easier to turn your back on, you know, than individual people with their individual needs and stories. And I think that people have just lost the ability to look and see their fellow man. And then, of course, they're being egged on by these populist leaders who have come into power. Um, And I I think that some of the people who were always hostile uh, have now found a voice. There were probably plenty of people who wanted us, you know, very much gone. I mean, I heard from some of them privately when I was growing up. But, um, you know, they didn't have a public place to voice these vile thoughts. And now they do. Right. Well, and of course, the other irony, too, of of making life in an adopted home more difficult for refugees or for immigrants is that then you also provide this obstacle to them assimilating, which is allegedly, you know, the ideal, right? Just learn English. Yeah, just become, I mean, look at the word assimilating to become similar or like someone else. I think it's a terrible expectation. And, and just like expecting gratitude, what you're essentially asking for is some kind of theater, right? Because nobody, nobody can force feelings like gratitude and love, right? And just the same, nobody can force themselves to transform overnight. All they can do is pretend for the sake of those people around them, right? And so you have all of this posturing, you know, all of this heartbreaking posturing, immigrants trying to show their good faith and their benign intentions um, by trying to like mimic the lives of the people whose communities they've joined. When really what they should be doing is finally taking a breath after having been saved, feeling maybe at home and welcome so that they can be their own natural selves. Um, And I think what's interesting and ironic is if they're allowed to do that, they will. assimilate in just the same way that the native community will assimilate to them because we are always assimilating to each other as human beings. We become like the people around us. That's what relationships are about. That's what friendship and love is all about. Um, So, you know, it's funny, it's become a little bit of a dirty word, assimilation. I think when it's mutual and when it's rooted in, you know, long-term connection and love, it's actually a good thing. But to expect an entire population to assimilate to you is is a little bit obscene. I mean, why should one group become more like another just because that other group was luckier born? Again, I keep coming back to this luckier born thing because we are constantly ignoring the accident of birth in all of our immigration debates. Well, I mean, do you think that the solution to or one let's say one solution is to be sort of like the title of your book the ungrateful refugee can you unpack that yeah i mean i think the thing that i'm referring to is not only what 
refugees are often called when they don't behave the way that they're expected to behave. But also just the underlying expectation, not just that they be grateful, but that they posture that gratitude for the benefit of the native born. So I'm not an ungrateful refugee or an ungrateful person. I don't think there is such a thing as an ungrateful refugee, because the thing is that every single one of us, if we've been saved from such hellish reality, go through our every single day just absolutely shivering with gratitude. But that gratitude is directed toward individuals and um, deities and whatever else of our own choosing because it's a private experience. That's what gratitude is, just like love. It can't be channeled toward somebody, you know. And, And so I guess what I'm arguing against is the idea that they should posture their gratitude for the benefit of the native born by being a certain way. I think that's a slippery slope to like some bad place Like, for example, again, with Ilan Omar saying to her, you know, that she should not participate in the political process the way a native born person would, because it's ungrateful for her to question, you know, her country's choices. Well, that's absurd, right? That kind of quote unquote gratitude is not even real gratitude. It's theater. It's posturing. And and it's it's too much to demand of someone when you wouldn't put yourself in that position. Right. I mean, there's a big difference between actual gratitude and performative gratitude. A hundred percent. You know, in addition to different ways of storytelling, you point out a couple different ways that you can make structural changes to sort of encourage both the native born giving aid and refugees receiving aid to like see each other as humans. You know, if you had a wish list Mm -hmm. of all the things that your book could accomplish by telling this story, what would it be? Wow, you mean policy-wise? <laughs> That's <laughs> Sure, uh, everything. <laughs> this is a tough wish list. Well, you know what? One thing I would do is let's start with a camp since that's where we were a minute ago. I think that, you know, if you're going to make large groups of people wait for entry to your countries, then you're responsible for educating them. You can't have children going years and years without school, children who were once, you know, hardworking and happy and healthy. After two years of just sitting around waiting, playing in rubble, they will become hardened. They will lose their joy. They will lose their ability to, you know, learn. I think there needs to be some kind of well-structured kind of education system in the camps. So, you know, how to do that, it's a very, very complicated thing, but it's really haphazard throughout Europe, whether or not there are schools, whether or not they even allow these people into the local schools. Then the next thing I would do when people are waiting, they should be allowed to work. Because sometimes these processes take so, so long. And again, you lose your identity and your sense of purpose in life if you just have to sit around and wait. In the UK, you can actually you know, lose asylum if, if they see that you've done a little bit of work as a volunteer. Can you imagine that? Like if you're so, so bored out of your mind that you volunteered for some organization, they will turn you away because you broke the law. You worked. Um, then they need to fix some of the, you know, logistical things around being a new arrival. You know, often people struggle with money. People struggle with housing at the beginning when you're trying to set up a new life. Then there's, of course, the larger question of who gets accepted and who gets to decide. I mean, this question has absolutely haunted me as I was researching this book and as I am working on my next one, because the people who decide what truth is have absolutely no idea about the human psyche and about how these experiences, I guess, typically go. So your typical asylum officer usually has some kind of, I guess, two-year bachelor's degree. This is in the UK. I think it's similar in the US. And they are incentivized to turn people away. And they have no training in trauma, in psychology, in medicine. There was this horrible case in the UK wherein 
asylum officers actually started to turn away torture survivors, disbelieving them based on this idea called self-inflicted torture by proxy, which was the notion that, you know, you come here as a torture survivor covered in scars and um, you say that you were tortured, but I don't believe you. I believe you tortured yourself or had yourself tortured by a doctor under anesthesia in order to get asylum in the UK. I mean, that's preposterous on every single level. And and then, of course, we need to change their incentive system. In the UK, they call it, um, what is it, a culture of disbelief in the home office. And this is definitely true in the US too. Why should there be a culture of disbelief? People don't uproot themselves and put themselves in danger and cross, you know, dangerous waters and, you know, militarized mountains and all of these places without an actual real thing to escape, you know? So um, I think I think all of that needs to change. Yeah. That was really super long-winded. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. I mean, there are a lot of problems, and I think that speaks to it. Um, you end your book with the idea of cultural repatriation, the idea of returning home, whether or not that's possible. You know, you just talked about the arduous process of making that decision to leave home, you know, because we, we can't choose where we're born, but once we're born somewhere, you know, through family and culture, it becomes a place that we do call home. I mean, it's different for everybody, but do you feel like it's possible to return home or forge a home or, or does the definition of home yeah. itself change? I think it does. And I think not only does it change, but maybe the definition of home was always different from what we thought it was because that initial sense of home, that child like sense of home, the thing all Iranians pined for from before the revolution, you know, that can never stay the same. It doesn't stay the same for anyone. You know, as Iranians, we keep thinking, oh, well, our country changed, but everybody's surroundings changed because time passes for everyone. So we all move through time in this immigrant way. You know, we all move away from that first place and time that we call home. So we have to get used to the fact that we're all displaced from that in some way. And so what I use as a comfort is the knowledge that I am going to grow more at home in my own mind and just be there. For her research, Dina Nayeri visited refugee camps across Europe and spoke with dozens of refugees, immigrants, asylum seekers, aid workers, and camp employees. So for more on their stories and Dina's, you'll have to read her new book, The Ungrateful Refugee. Links, as ever, in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then. Take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.